Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Is everyone, uh, is everyone enjoying the heat? I hope, I hope so. This air conditioner is, tr- is trying hard to keep you hydrated, and so is your bartender. So, um, please buy a drink, hard or soft, support the bar, you support the series, we want to keep the series going as long as we can, so even if you don't drink alcohol, a soft drink is perfectly acceptable beverage, and uh, oh, no, no. it's not good, David says no, so no, 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 just kidding. Uh, I'm Matthew Kressel, this is Fantastic Fiction at KGB, we've been doing this for over 20 years. Ellen Datlow is usually my partner in crime, but... Uh, as some of you know, she has uh, had COVID. She's recovering. She's, uh, but just as a precaution, she's staying home. She's quarantining. So uh, the wonderful, the marvelous Mercurio de Rivera is co-hosting with me tonight. Uh, so two, two announcements. Uh, yesterday was Mercurio's birthday. So let's, uh, let's all give him his birthday punches. And, uh, and his, uh, his um, mosaic novel um, has just been nominated for an Arthur C. Clarke Award. So let's... Yeah. So it's called Oregon the Alien Love War and it is... I know I've mentioned it here before but it's basically a... Um, it's a story about all the different ways that people can love and hurt each other. And it is really just one of the most fantastic metaphors of love I've ever read. So if you get a chance to read that, I hope, I hope you do. Um, clearly the judges of the Arthur C. Clarke Award recognized how, how good it is. I've always known, because I've read it long before anyone else has. Um, but uh, yeah, so check that out. Um, I'm excited for uh, our readers tonight. Uh, we have Daniel Brown and Gregory Frost reading for us. So, um, Daniel's going to be our first reader. So when we went virtual for the pandemic, Daniel uh, was our first reader, along with Robert Levy, uh, doing the whole virtual YouTube thing. So thanks, Dan, for for stepping up for that. That was awesome. And uh, thank you all for supporting the KGB Bar during that period. I know a lot of you donated during that time. Uh, Keep the bar going. We're really happy to to be here. Um, Just a quick announcement about upcoming readers, and we'll get on to the actual show. Um, next month, August 17th, we have Veronica Shanus and Richard Butner. Um, we have a date change. KGB Fantastic Fiction has always been the third Wednesday of the month. In September, we're switching to the second Wednesday of the month. So just keep that in mind. Update your calendars. September 14th, we have Nasim Jamina, J- sorry, Jamia and Nick Kaufman, who's right here. Um, October 12th, Clay McLeod Chapman and Meg Ellison. November 9th, Stephanie Feldman and Eileen Gunn. So we hope that you will join us for those uh, readers. And uh, Dan, you have books for sale tonight. What it, uh, I, I assume you'll mention it, but uh, yes, if during the break, we're going to take a break after Dan's reading. Come up, buy a book, get it signed if you have a book, or if you just want to you know, get to know the authors, they're here. Um, Greg, do you have any books for sale? No books for sale, but Gregory Frost, you can find them on your favorite bookstore. I'm sorry? Oh, all right. Uh, Daniel Brown writes strange tales in the tradition of Robert Aikman. His stories, set in locations around the globe, explore the tension between the psychological and supernatural. His latest collection, Underworld Dreams, by the way, this is a fantastic cover. It's kind of hard to see from a distance, but it's like this gray sea. It's beautiful if you get a chance to look at it. His collection, his latest collection, Underworld Dreams, contains the story 
How to Stay Afloat When Drowning, which also appears in the Best Horror of the Year, Volume 12, edited by Ellen Datlow. His first collection, The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales, and his first novella, The Serpent's Shadow, are being reissued as trade paperbacks by Cemetery Dance Publications in May 2023. His first novel, Servant of the Eighth Winds, is also coming in 2023 from Lethe Press. Here's Daniel Brown. Uh, thank you so much, Matt and Ellen and KGB. Um, and thank you to all of you. Wow. Uh, it sure is great to be here in person and to see all of your faces. Thank you so much for coming. Um, tonight, I'm uh, reading from a story uh, that's not out yet. Uh, the story is titled, A Loch Ness Monster Under the Light of the Southern Cross. And it's coming out next year in a book that's just been announced called, And Still We Wander Further, An Anthology of Labyrinths. And that's edited by Justin Burnett, and it's being published by Ontology Books. So it's a long story and it shifts back and forth in time. I'm gonna read two sections that follow each other chronologi chronologically. The only bit of information I'll say about the section you're not gonna to hear tonight is just that the characters who you will meet, Ronnie and Lena, were childhood friends who experienced some trauma together and they've reconnected later in life. Uh, Lena's father disappeared when they were children and they recently discovered his location and they're on this journey when you meet them. So this is from A Loch Ness Monster Under the Light of the Southern Cross. Thank you. Stan Creek District, Belize. Once you're done with the sense of loss and the loneliness and the pain and range of emotions you go through, there is something freeing about not mattering at all, about being no one's number one in this world. It's a release from all the twists and turns, the patterns you find yourself in, all the things your own making and otherwise holding you in place. Time helps. Some days you still wake up raw and hollow, not from your most recent loss or from any one thing, but from the weight of all of it. Lena doesn't see this. How could she? Some cuts are too fresh. There are only a couple of huts here, and ours is perfect, stark and empty, a clean slate. The sky, the sea, the jungle, the flowers, providing all the color and sound and beautiful things I could want around me. An elderly lady, dressed for a flight back to New York, is clamoring about the manatee that has surfaced in one of the sinkholes on the property, and Lena isn't even interested in looking. I tell the young Belizean guy renting us the Jeep that we're headed to Ihaka's down near Placencia, and he says, just make sure you don't go to the unfinished condos next door. Why? Rough parking? He shrugs. Everybody knows it's the one place you don't go. The elderly lady stops directing her even more elderly and dazed-looking husband where to roll their luggage and chimes in. Oh, oh, darling, we went past it on our way back from the ruins. Such a shame. It has so much potential, sleek buildings, clean lines. Our driver told us it was built by a drug dealer, so now no one wants to buy it. Didn't he say something about a shootout and a suicide? They're such a lovely couple, dear. Don't rain on their parade. Uh, love, let me tell you about this place where we had breakfast. Perfect for you lovebirds. We're not a couple, Lena replies flatly. Like me, she never fit in with dark eyes from her Polynesian mother and complexion from her father's Scottish side. She was always too beautiful to be teased. Mostly, I remember her as just present, a lot like now. Her brother was the one who drew the spotlight. There isn't a touch of gray in her long black ponytail, only a sheen from the sun and barely a wrinkle on her. Unlike so many of the people we went to school with, their bodies gone to hell and faces bearing the signs of their age and then some. We're visiting her father, I say with a smile. I've known them since I was a kid. We aren't interesting enough and we've lost the woman's attention to the task of getting her bags into the airport van. I can't help seeing the vast emptiness in her husband's eyes that something about the way he stands says he's 
lost. He's just along for the ride, and despite paying enough attention to know the drug deal shootout story, he's not really here at all. It's the same with Lena. I don't think she liked hearing her brother's name out loud. I feel that distance between us and between me and everyone. I had hoped for otherwise, but the feeling is nothing new. In the uncomfortable silence, I hear the ocean murmuring from not far away, the din of all the living things in the trees, and the call and replies of birds that sound nothing like home. We hop in the jeep, top and doors off, and I gun it. The heat doesn't seem to bother her, nor the bumpy road. She smells like alcohol, and I hope I wasn't wrong in pegging her for being a good traveler. In the fun little airport bar in Belize City, waiting for our puddle jumper, she was enthusiastic about the green cocktails and martini glasses made with paisang liqueur. She talked about the war and the stock market with a young couple traveling with their adorable Pekingese. All good signs. Glad to be here? She only gives a nod. I immediately wish I hadn't spoken. When someone's mind is in a maze, there's not a lot you can do to lead them out. How long does it take to communicate the events of decades gone by? The scale of disappointments, a day, a week? Even after everything that scarred and didn't heal, I never lost sight of the fact that the world was full of love. I never felt the need to escape. Despite countless ghosts and memories in so many of my everyday places, I never felt the suburban streets were harsh or ugly or even painful anymore. No sharp edges, things just became worn and acquired an ever-present weight, unnoticeable on most days, at least the good ones. I was feeling that benign numbness yesterday when I reconnected with Lena. The road's two lanes carve a path through an incomprehensible mass of wild greenery and trees on either side. I like the heat and the wind. Lena produces an airplane-sized liqueur bottle, I have no idea where from, and downs it. In the second my eyes are on her, someone darts into the road. I swerve and manage to keep the jeep off the muddy ditch of a shoulder and moving forward. Lena doesn't appear phased, so I guess she's all right. More people emerge from the jungle. They're carrying something above them, something big. A dead crocodile. It's huge. They're walking with it in some sort of procession. Belizeans and expats, a couple of dozen people from all walks of life. I slow to a halt to let them safely cross the road. Hey, honk for us, one of them calls. Lena reaches over and smashes the horn to their delight. A couple of young men jump on our hood and slap our windshield and give the thumbs up. What's going on? I say over the engine and the people. I can hear they are singing something mournful. We got him. This is the salty that took the Johnson's kid, Sarita, a shirtless American guy with long dreads and a baby face, tells me. We watch them cross and disappear into the other side, maybe heading for the beach, I guess. I notice some monkeys in one of the big strangler figs in the tangle of trees, just sitting there in a bough, eating fruit and watching, too. They got that thing in the jungle? Maybe in one of the underground rivers, I say, or sinkholes. This whole area is connected that way. I get us moving, and before long, we've reached what I think are the condos. There's a gateway and long drive that looks like it belongs in Beverly Hills or New Jersey, leading past a moat-like canal circling the place. The canals and uniformity of the rows of white buildings evoke every gated community in Florida I've ever seen. The road veers right, and a big painted wooden sign comes into view. Ihakas. Draped in Christmas lights, it no doubt cannot be missed at night. I roll to the dirt patch of cleared jungle that is the parking lot and line the jeep up with the dozen or so cars there, new and mostly clean rentals like ours. A few paces inside the tree line, I can see the wallless bar, the bamboo struts and thatch, and two shelves of liqueur beneath the taxidermic crocodile, exactly the same as we saw it on the TV in the 7-Eleven. And there's Lena's dad, shaking a metal shaker. 
right out of my childhood memory. Same dark glasses, and not looking like he's aged much. He's in a loose-fitting, dark dress shirt and slacks, not the plain gray suits I remember him in. I hadn't put eyes on him since the days the Smiths broke up and left us holding tickets to their show at the Ritz. His son's name on the big sign and Lena's tense stare leave no doubt it's him, as if there were any question. You okay? Mm-hmm, Lena says. Let's get a drink. We take seats at the bar. Her dad's still tall and skinny and pasty white. Up close, I see there are wrinkles on his forehead and dark patches under his eyes. Lena catches his attention and orders. I see you've got Midori. Good. Two melon balls. Extra vodka for me. Hold the pineapple juice for him. For a second, I am clueless about her order. Then I remember it was Ihaka's drink, just the way he liked it. He loved those godforsaken concoctions and didn't give a flying fuck if any of his jock teammates summoned the balls to roust him for drinking a so-curled, girly drink. Lena's dad puts a brown square of napkin in front of each of us. Two melon balls got it, coming right up. He turns, grabs two hardball glasses from the hanging rack, and begins fixing the drinks. Forget about me. How can it be he doesn't recognize her? Fuck this, we're out of here, Lena says, and is on her feet. I know it's been how long, but not recognizing your own daughter, that's fucked up. Lena marches to the jeep. I don't dare say a word. Keys, she says. I throw them to her and hop in the side. How dare he use Ihaka's name for his bar, she says as we roll past the sign. She peels out and we're back heading north. She brings the jeep to a dangerous speed and slams on the brakes. She backs up right on the road and turns into the condos. Here? I want to see this fucking place, she says. It looks abandoned. It is abandoned. It's empty. Nothing to see. She parks up against the big gate and gets out of the jeep. There's an access door made out of the same bars that isn't padlocked, and it swings right open. I follow her. The path to the row of finished houses is flanked by a canal. The water is clean and flowing. Looks like rain runoff, draining to somewhere. Hurricane and flood protection, just like Florida, I guess. The canal circles the development and weaves in and out of the buildings. They're a bit weathered, but look unused, unfurnished. No personalized accoutrements I can discern. Until I see a little red light in an unscreened window. A trail cam. Its black housing does not look weathered at all. Lena's at the last house in the row before a big building at the edge of the jungle. She pulls the door open. Of course it isn't locked. She steps inside and I hurry over. This one is lived in for sure. There's a wall of books and a wall with ceiling to floor shelves full of amazing bottles. All different shapes and colors. There isn't one bottle, alcohol or otherwise, that I've ever seen before. Lena, I don't like this. We, we should get out of here. You're right. We go back outside. Instead of turning to leave the compound the way we came, she walks towards the big building and takes the path into the jungle. I see there are sinkholes flanking the path where it runs under the trees. Careful, I call. There could be a crock or, or something. She doesn't stop. I contemplate whether I should hang back and give her space or follow. I check out the large building. I wonder if it were a gym or a common area. It's got big glass windows, maybe a greenhouse? They're all steamed and it's fogged up in there. Not one of them has been broken. I go into the trees after Lena. After a few minutes, I find her sitting at the edge of a large sinkhole a couple of hundred yards in. There are no trees above. The sun is going down. It smells like summer. The surface of the perfectly clear water captures a reverse image of the vine-wrapped trees and their countless shades of brown and the lush green fawns and ferns and saplings, all mixed in with the rocky side of the sinkhole disappearing into the earth. As I walk over to sit next to her, I startle a foot-long brown lizard with a triangular crest. Rear toes spread wide, it dashes across the surface of the water, its long tail disturbing floating water lilies. As it crosses the center point, its scales shimmer white and pink and green in the sunlight 
before it disappears onto the opposite bank. I notice petite white flowers on one of the vines creeping around a robust gumbo limbo tree. And there aren't any mosquitoes. I can see why the little town was built here. This is a paradise. Lena downs another airplane bottle of rum. I know that sucked, I say. It's okay to be triggered. I'm not triggered. In the quiet of our silence that follows, there is the rustle of the air moving the canopy, the din of sounds radiating from the leaves and branches, akin to the buzz of New York cicadas, yet still wholly new and alien, and a back and forth of bird calls so full about their business that I am certain that this is their world and we are the interlopers. After a few minutes, she gives a solid poke to my shoulder and points to the water. What? She shushes me, puts her finger over her mouth and whispers, what the fuck is that? Where? There, right, right in the middle. I ease myself to my feet. I don't see anything. There's only the crystal clear water, not even a ripple. She can't hide her disappointment and stares at me as if I'm crazy. I have the feeling this expression is one I would know well should the trajectories of our lives keep us together after this. It is the opposite look, the reciprocal of her sated face, the one I saw still flush with heat about to be at rest, seconds from sleep in my bed last night, her disheveled hair transforming my pillow to a thing of beauty, when I told her things not only were going to be all right, they were going to be amazing. It's been one hell of a long day and an upsetting day, and she's probably a little drunk and a lot dehydrated. It was only yesterday I rolled by my childhood home on my way back from the grocery store to feel something, to feel anything besides like a ghost haunting the places that sprung up over the decades in the places I once knew. I couldn't have guessed I'd find myself here today with her feeling alive again, just like that, yet feeling so lost. So it skips back in time. We get them back in time. I'm just going to read a final short section when we come back to them after the flashback. And here we are. Lena stands and walks along the bank, glancing in the sinkhole every couple of seconds while navigating through the tangle of brush. I just want to make sure I'm in the right space. <laughs> tangle of brush and saplings. What is it she thinks she sees? Hey, I think we should split. I want to check it out here a little more. Will you give me just a few? Okay, a few. Be careful, please. I take the trail out and stop walking at the big building. Its side face in the jungle is made of two barn-style doors. I pull one open, just enough to peek inside. Cool white mist wafts out and the odor of turpentine and something resinous hits me. I inch my head in and can see the large spaces mostly empty. Up top, a sprinkler wand running along the row of sunroof windows kicks on with a hiss and spray of water. Through the moisture and fog, I make out a large, low rectangular table in the center running the length of the place. Something big is on it, all wrapped in bandages. Some sort of animal? It has a long snout like a croc, but the thing is not croc-shaped, and it's the size of a whale, though it's definitely not an orca or other small whale. Its shape is nothing I've ever seen before. Its neck is long, too long for a crocodile. One of the cream-colored medicinal bandages has unfurled and hangs from a thin, triangular flipper. I step inside. The air is heavy, even more humid than outside, and tinged with a herbaceous smell. Beneath the green and floral odor, the reek of something sweet and pungent lurks, along with more of that bitter turpentine. The far end of the table is a cart loaded with odd bottles, the same different colored glass kinds that we saw in that housing unit. I take another cautious step and freeze when red lights wink on. 
more trail cams. I breathe for a moment, staring at the clouds of mist glowing pink, then back out. I catch a whiff of something plum-like and resinous as I close the doors. We'll stop it right there, and uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll take a break. Greg will be up next, and thank you so much. It's a selection. That book's going to be out next year, and uh, I have a selection of my collections and some anthologies my work's appeared in, if you care to have a look. Thank you so much, everyone. Dan, remind us the name of the the the, collect, the anthology that's coming out in. It's called. Um, <laughs> it is called. Uh, and still we wander further. And still we wander further. All right, so check that out. If you want to get any of Dan's books, they're up here. Please come up, buy a book, get them signed, talk to the authors, and of course buy a drink. So we'll be, we'll be back in about ten or fifteen minutes with Gregory Frost. Okay, everybody. I wanted to, just want to take a brief moment to um, congrat to really to express my appreciation to Matt and to Alan for allowing me to co-host here at the iconic KGB bar. And I'm here for for one purpose. I really have a single-minded purpose. No one can stop me from doing this. I'm here to introduce Gregory Frost. And Wait, who are you? Who are you? My name is Mercurio D. Rivera, uh, also known as David. <laughs> And uh, yes, I'm here for that for that reason. It's a good reason. It's so, a reason. Um, so I'm going to do it. Uh, okay. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Scared to go. Okay. Gregory Frost writes across the fantasy spectrum. He's currently at work on a fantasy set in 12th century Scotland, a supernatural western mashup set in 1858, and a hard SF story in collaboration with his late friends, the inestimable Bill Johnson which is just sold to Asimov's magazine. His previous collaborative story with Michael Swanwick won an Asimov's Reader, Reader's Award in the pre-COVID universe of 2015. His former Golden Griffin short story collection is being reprinted in late August through Bookview Cafe as The Girlfriends of Dorian Gray and Other Stories. Most days as he writes, he's accompanied by his cat. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Frost. You say that now. No. So, all right. So this is a story. Apparently, there have been a lot of readings from this anthology just in the last couple of days. Uh, this is a story I wrote for a theme anthology edited by Michael Ventrilla um, called Three Time Travelers Walk Into... Anyway, that's it. That's ellipses, and that's it. Yeah. And um, I'll give you the background on the story, but I'd rather just read the story instead. But what I did is accidentally write a, a, a one-act play. So if anybody wants to put this on, it's really easy. So anyway, that said, can I move this light yeah, back? Just that much? I don't want to tear your tape up. It's taped. Oh, it's brand new. Oh, it's brand new. So am I. Okay, Sorry. so... All right, so this is a story called Episode in Liminal State Technical Support, or Mr. Grant in the Bardo. 1.47.23 p.m. It is his 100th, his final session with Dr. Hartman, whom he calls my Mahatma. You would think it would be easy sailing by now. He lies back on the blue couch, closes his eyes, and waits, drifting. He should right now be seeing blossoming, exploding, and recurring Rorschach patterns saturated with color. Instead, when somebody shakes his shoulder, he finds himself lying on a thick cushion that's red as a field of poppies. He expects it will be Hartman shaking him, certainly not one of the staff. Interruption of a patient's LSD therapy session is strictly verboten. So who but his Mahatma would intrude? Instead, however, an oddly jointed blonde woman stands above him. She has a pageboy haircut and looks strikingly like Eva Marie Saint, whom he hasn't seen since they wrapped shooting on North by Northwest. Her couture is strange, too, a pants outfit somewhere between Flash Gordon and Busby Berkeley, with winged shoulder pads and a spiral sequin design from top to bottom with flared pant legs. 
There's something uncanny and artificial about her demeanor, a too perfectly smooth face, for one thing. All of this dampens his annoyance somewhat at being pulled out of his final session of psychedelics. Maybe if he just closes his eyes, he can go back to looking inside himself and she'll go away. He tries it, although no sparkling visuals appear. After a minute, the woman says, Good evening, sir. He opens his eyes again. She's still there with a clipboard. Could you go away? I'm trying to enjoy my periodolia. It's at that point he realizes he's in a completely different room. No maple paneling, no blue couch, no desk for Hartman. Everything's translucent and the overhead light diffuse, as if the entire ceiling is the light. He sits up. He's wearing the same cashmere sweater, the same linen slacks, and dark socks. Same tan to his hand, so presumably the rest of him. His loafers are on the floor beside his crystalline day bed. He considers the woman again. Her head is tilted to one side like the RCA pup. You probably get this all the time, but am I dead? She smiles as if the question has activated her. That's what we need to determine, she explains. You've been transported here to liminal state technical support, and death is one possibility. Liminal who what? She consults her plastic clipboard. It's our job, my job, to determine your fate, whether you're alive, dead, reborn, or transmogrified. Just the four choices? What about gaily intoxicated? I don't know what that means. She taps an index finger at the clipboard. You, sir, fell off your timeline. Pardon me. The only thing I fell off was a couch. Well, you must have hit your head, fallen through a surprise wormhole, something. She studies the clipboard again. Strange it doesn't say on your chart. I suppose that's why I'm here to determine your fate. If it's all the same to you, I don't want my fate determined. That's why I'm in therapy. <laughs> he smooths his dark hair, going gray at the temples, feels around for a bump or a dent. There's nothing. If you're technical support, what exactly is it you're supporting anyway? Why the stability of the universe? There are beings like you who fall off the timeline. While some are supposed to disappear, most are not. It is our job to ensure all outcomes are correct. And what my hitting my head destabilizes the universe? My goodness, I must be the Grand Poobah. I don't know what that means. Of course not. So you make people disappear. Yes, we do. You sound like Murder Incorporated. What do you people do? What do you, what do, you do with people once they fall off this timeline thing? She brightens as this question she can answer. They're placed in a state of suspended animation here in our facility until such time as we are able to place them in a similar compatible timeline. You're giving me a headache. What is a similar compatible timeline? Another timeline within the myriad of multiverses where we can insert them without any ripples. For the record, when I wake up, I expect Hartman to explain to me how I can be making up this dialogue when I don't even understand it. He shakes his head as if to clear it. All right, alive, dead, reborn, or transmogrified. Is that actually a word? He gestures around himself. So what would this be then? It might be rebirth. It's difficult to tell, as this is merely a way station. Of course, I need to confirm your information. Rebirth is what I was engaged in accomplishing for myself before you interrupted. I mean, I am talking to you, or am I talking to you, or am I just talking to myself and thinking there's a you? Well, I'm truly sorry, Mr. She peers at the clipboard. Mr. Clementine. He blinks. Oh, my darling. Listen, Leech or Grant, I answer to both, but there's no Mr. Clementine in here. He wraps a knuckle against his head, though I believe we have located the source of the problem. What? She studies the clipboard, shakes her head. Oh, no, that can't be right. He smugly crosses his arms. No, it can't, can it? I am or was in Dr. Hartman's office for my final session. Maybe you were supposed to collect his three o'clock. She looks ready to burst into tears. Listen, he says, if it's any consolation, I'm very likely imagining you in your conundrum anyway, and if you'll just send me back to where I was, I'll peel you off the inside of my eyelids, and we can forget the whole thing. At least I will, happily. He considers the clear daybed, the red pad on top of it, now notices various toggles and lights on the wall behind it, as well as a row of four buttons in red, green, yellow, and blue. You can send me back. Oh, yes, if this turns out to be our fault, we'll just, you'll just lie down again and I'll press the blue button over there and you won't even know you were gone. Blue for alive, I hope. Of course, red for rebirth, yellow for death, and yes, I think I've got it now, thank you. 
If you'll just lie down, I will go and find out what's happened to Clementine. Lost and gone forever, I imagine. I don't understand that. Dreadful, sorry. He gives her a big smile and sits back down. So I'll just wait. They're interrupted by an alarm that seems to sound from everywhere around them. The woman sweeps her hand across her clipboard. No lines appear in her face, but somehow she frowns. Oh, no. What's the matter now? Judge Crater's escaped again. Is he still running around? He's due to be under an aquarium. Oh, dear, I'll be right back. Speechless, he watches as she turns away and glides across the small chamber. A door slides open where there was no door, and she's gone. There's no obvious belt or moving panel in the floor. How did she skate like that? However, the door remains open. The alarm has stopped sounding, but the lights flash on and off in the corridor. He considers everything, finally deciding that somewhere he's lying on a blue couch above gray shag carpeting, and this is his damn hallucination, so he can do as he pleases. He puts on his shoes and walks through the open door and into a long corridor. Both sides contain nothing but translucent chambers identical to his own. He walks across the way. A new door slides open. Inside is the mirror image of his own chamber. The figure lying on the red pad there is an elderly man who looks vaguely like Mark Twain, though his hair is more gray than white, and he needs a shave. The fellow is dressed in a collarless shirt, brown vest, tan dungarees. His pointed-toe boots on the floor beside him are roughly worn and hand-tooled. A gentle shake on the shoulder produces no effect. He circles around to the same panel on the wall as was installed in his own chamber, Knowing what the four buttons do, he leaves them alone, instead considers the odd toggle switches. What can it hurt? This is all in his mind anyway. He flips one of the toggles. The figure is bathed in an intense red light for a moment and begins to stir. He goes over to him and the man opens his eyes, reaches up for assistance, and he pulls him upright. The older man stretches with a grimace, glances around himself while clearing his throat. Where's this, he asks. Sure as hell isn't Chihuahua. Well, there's a novel idea. Frankly, I'm not sure where this is, but you're the first to bring Chihuahua into it. By the way, who would you be? Beers. Ambrose Gwinnett Beers. And you? Well, in for a penny. Grant. Carrie Archibald Leach Grant. Say, you want Chickamauga Beers, are you? I am proud to be one of America's three greatest writers. He seems to find the idea absurd. And who are the other two? Without cracking a smile, Bierce replies, William Dean Howells. Well, he must get around a lot. Not as much as me, he hasn't. Been all through the South, visiting graves of men I killed in the war before I crossed through Texas to Mexico, joined Villa's army, and reported there on the Battle of Tierra Blanca. I wrote of it to Blanche, and that's about all I remember. I was setting out. Stops and shakes his head. Bierce's demeanor is dour. Not so much troubled as resolved. He nods at all of this information as if understanding it, but truly all that he recalls of Ambrose Bierce's life story is that he vanished without a trace, and that various conflicting tales claim to explain his whereabouts. What happened <clears throat> excuse me. What happened to you that you ended up here? Well, firstly, I should like to know where here is, says Bierce. Wouldn't we all? What do you say we wake somebody else up? Maybe they'll know more than we do. So long as you mean to explain. He grabs his boots and pulls them on. Well, listen, do you, you remember what happened to your character in Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge? You've read it? I have, and you and I would seem to be in that illusory location between the escape and the hanging. Personally, I would prefer a different outcome if it's all the same to anyone. Bierce, looking gloomier, says nothing but follows after him. They walk along the corridor while lights continue flashing on and off. Finally, he turns to Bierce in some frustration. Anybody could be in any one of these compartments. There's nothing to identify one from the other. Except for those, Bierce points to a dully lighted strip of characters above the nearest door. Yes, but can you read it? No, sir, I can't. That's no lingo I've ever seen. Me either. So I say, what the hell, let's take our chances and hope we don't wake up until the hun. He walks over to the one in front of him, and the invisible door magically defines itself and slides aside. Shall we? Might as well, says Beers. Can't dance. He grins as the old man passes him. I'll have to remember that one. Inside the compartment is identical to the other two he's seen. A slender, middle-aged woman lies on the red pad here. 
Her dark blonde hair is cut short and shaggy. Her eyes are closed, but her mouth, slightly open, reveals a gap between her front teeth. She's dressed in a pale blue shirt beneath a leather aviator's jacket above khaki trousers. One of her socks has a hole. Something about her seems familiar. How do we wake her up? Beers asks. Oh, like this. He crosses around to the wall and flips the same toggle as before. She's bathed in red light, and shortly her eyelids flutter open. Beer spins over her. Hello there, he says. How are you feeling? The woman looks up in a daze. Are you God? Am I dead? Beer smiles in some embarrassment. No, madam, I am not. Introduces himself. Her bright eyes widen with recognition of his name, and she sits up. What? You disappeared. I remember hearing of it. She considers for a moment, and I suppose I must have disappeared too. I know, I know we were lost, coasting on fumes, and Fred thought the 20B receiver wasn't transmitting the right frequency, or, or maybe the antenna had broken off. She glances around, notices him at the controls. He gives her a friendly smile. Is Fred here too, she asks him. Fred Noonan? He shakes his head. He might be somewhere. We've only just found you, Amelia. I, you know me? Only the same stories that everyone knows, the greatest female aviator and inspiration to thousands of women pilots in World War II. There was a World War II? And one? Beers interjects. Oh, dear. There's a good deal happened after you two disappeared, uh, and rather more for you to absorb Ambrose on the thing. Uh, Earhart asks, and who are you? A fair question. He introduces himself. The name obviously doesn't register, but by 1937, when she vanished, he had only been in a couple of films. And how did you disappear? Ah, uh, well, that's the thing, you see. As far as I know, I didn't disappear at all. These birds mistook me for someone named Clementine. Earhart and Beers both laugh. Yes, I thought it was hilarious, too, the first couple of times. But where is this place, asks Earhart. Why are we here if we disappeared somewhere else? He does his best to explain what the eccentric attendant told him, including the four possible outcomes determined by the panel on the wall behind them. Beers replies, what's it even mean to say somebody fell off their timeline? Sounds like a bicycle. I can only assume it means there was some preordained outcome for you and you didn't take it. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood. Beers continues gravely, I certainly chose a less traveled way. At least I would have had they let me be. Road where I come to my end, guess that didn't jibe with the universe's plans. Probably it couldn't. Why is that? because where I truly want to go is Carcosa. Earhart, puzzled, says, where? Beers nods, a place I invented once upon a time, a great city, but my narrator, who was a ghost, only remembered its splendors long past. I always thought I should like to arrive in its heyday, see what I might make of myself there. I've, I've done about all I need on this road. You want to go to a place that doesn't exist. Well, why not? I've seen enough of reality, and I'll tell you, it's nothing but the dream of a mad philosopher. Beers points to the four-colored button. So which of these will send me there? None of them, I think. We're in Miss Earhart's chamber. We'd have to go back to yours. All right, then, gathering himself up, Beers turns and strides out into the corridor, where the lights are no longer flashing. I have a feeling they've caught up to Judge Crater, he tells Earhart. Judge Crater, the missingest man in New York. Believe it or not, he says as he takes her by the arm, he's the reason you're up and about. And if they manage to catch him, we don't have much time for goodbyes. They hurry down the corridor and follow Beers back into his chamber, where he plops down on the bed, tugs off his boots, and asks again of the buttons, which one is it? He crosses to the panel. According to the attendant, the green one, the only one that doesn't simply kill you or return you somewhere you've been. Magical transformation, I think it means, which sounds like your carcosa. Beers lies back down on the red pad, crosses his hands like a body in an open coffin. All right, he says, I'm ready. You'll probably need to be asleep first. He flicks the same toggle as before it bathes Beers in red light, which fails to put him to sleep. He flicks the other toggle. A deep blue light surrounds Ambrose Beers, and almost immediately he's unconscious. I swear, everything here is color-coordinated. It's like a bespoke tie and a handkerchief. 
Are you certain about this? Earhart looks worried. I'm not even sure I'm awake. Imagine me explaining to Dr. Hartman how I spent the afternoon with you and Ambrose Beers, and at the end of it, I sent Beers off to a place he invented. I'll have my very own rubber room by dinner time. From the doorway comes the cry of, stop. It's the attendant. He sees her now from head to foot, only there are no feet. Her legs end in wheels. If this isn't real, I'm going to need more therapy. The attendant glides into the room. You mustn't do that. Why not? It's what he wanted. What is what he wanted? He explains what Beers has said and where he wants to go. She holds up her clipboard. I have an exhaustive set of questions for him to answer yet. How did you find this out without the proper forms? We listened to him, replies Earhart. Oh. The attendant seems momentarily lost as if she's wandered into the wrong chamber. Green button, she says. Well, that's a relief, he answers and presses the button. Beers vanishes in the same instant. And how is dear old Judge Crater, he asks her. Focusing upon him again, she replies, he's now where he was destined to be. Under an aquarium, you said. I bet that was fun for him. What about me, asks Earhart and Fred. Yes, what about Fred Newman, he inquires of the attendant. She consults the clipboard, which he notes has now has nothing on it. He's beginning to suspect it's something other than a clipboard. He's gone, she says. We had no trouble inserting him back into a timeline. I'm not sure I want to know what that means. And Miss Earhart? I do not know what she desires nor where she wants to go. What's that mean, what I desire? She's asking him, not the attendant. Her eyes brim with tears, no doubt for the loss of her friend and co-pilot. But he can't help feeling some tenderness toward her. She is, in this topsy-turvy universe, the only, only seven years older than he is, or rather she was back in 1937, a world-renowned heroine, someone who does things. Gently, he tells her, you know, when I started in with this LSD therapy, I didn't know what I wanted just how miserably unhappy I'd been forever. Inside was this little boy, Archie, who believed for much of his life that his mother had deserted him and hated him, and so also believed that he must be worthless. Archie was walled off by the persona I built named Cary Grant, which protected him but also allowed him to thrive and undermine every relationship I had. Every woman was my mother and Archie had it in for her. Even after I learned the truth that she had been put away in an asylum by my father, Archie continued to destroy everything. But now I've seen what inner peace looks like. He's done plenty, but my future doesn't include him anymore. That's what I want. I want to fall in love right for once. He looks at her with what he hopes is enticement, or maybe twice. She stands there silent for a moment. When she speaks, though, that's not what he was hoping to hear. I guess everything started for me on December 28, 1920, when Frank Hawks took me up in his plane at the State Fair. After that, it was simply all those times flying with Netta, with Snooky. That was the best. Well, would have been if I hadn't had to endure all those sinus operations. That I can do without if you can make it possible. Otherwise, yes, if there's any place I'd like to be, it'd be with Snooky again on those training flights. I think she felt that way, too. And maybe all the good years with George, th that would be fine. She smiles at him and reluctantly, he nods, smiling back. The attendant consults her board. A closed loop then, circling forever. He can't help barking a laugh. Isn't that figuratively what she's doing in the public imagination anyway? I suppose. Well then, let's find your timeline. Come along. She rolls into the hall and along the open chamber. She pats the red cushion. Lie back on the frame, she instructs Earhart. Which button for her? Red, of course, for rebirth. Rebirth? He hesitates. You sure? Oh, yes. And she'll be reborn without the pain she spoke of and endure forever in the sphere of time she's chosen. It's closed and thus, thus interrupts no other timeline. Thank you, Amelia says to him just before the blue light douses her and she falls asleep. Well, don't thank me, he quips. I'm just... Stop speaking because the red padded frame is empty. The attendant turns and efficiently glides over to him. And now, Mr. Clementine? He stabs a finger at her. You know the problem with your system is it's too rigid. I am not now, nor have I ever been a practicing Clementine. It's Grant. Suit yourself. 
She rolls out of the empty chamber. I intend to, he says to Melody, all the rest of my days. Then he follows her out. Back in his chamber, he slips off his shoes and lies back. How are you feeling then, Mr. Grant? She asks. Blue, he replies, and gestures at the four buttons. Decidedly blue. The attendant flips the toggle. 1.47.24 p.m. Thank you. Thank you, Gregory. And tell us again where we can find that. That is in an, <laughs> I can speak. That is in an anthology called Three Time Travelers Walk Into. Three Time Travelers. Three tra time travelers walk into dot, dot, dot. dot, dot, dot. All right. Well, thank you, Gregory. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you to the KGB bar and Kelly, our bartender, who's somewhere in the back. Um, thank you all who have attended tonight. We really appreciate coming in person and, of course, buying a drink, please. Um, and then we will see you next month. So, yes. Awesome. And come and meet the authors and buy a book. So, yeah. <laughs>